0: Today's scripture passage is from John 14, verses 1 through 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you myself so that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going, Thomas said to him. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, You do know him and have seen him.
1: Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father? and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is holy wisdom, holy word.
2: So a man died and went to heaven and heaven appeared to be this enormous house and an angel was showing him around and leading him down one of the hallways and they passed a room and in the room there were several people dressed all in white and they were spinning and spinning around really fast and the man says, what's going on in there? And the angel said, well, Those are the whirling dervishes, part of the Sufi tradition. They're very lively. And they they keep walking, and they pass another room, and in that room are several people seated very quietly in meditation to the sound of a gong. The man says, well, who's in there? The angel said, those are some of our Zen Buddhists. They're very quiet. You would hardly even know they're here. They keep walking and they're about to go around a corner. And the angel says, Now, I ask that you please pass this next room very quietly. The man says, Well, well why is that? And the angel said, Well, in the next room there are several Christians and they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> <They're quiet>. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm sure you heard Peter say it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm sure many of you have heard those sentences before. They're definitely the most famous out of the passage from John's Gospel that we heard today. And unfortunately, they're famous in not necessarily a good way, as that story illustrates those sentences have been used by Christians through the years to proclaim that Christianity is the superior religion. In fact, perhaps that Christianity is the only true religion. You can't know God. You can't get to heaven. You can't be considered God's beloved child unless you're Christian. I mean, it says right there in the Bible, Right? Jesus is the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that way of reading this passage, that exclusive, restrictive, even arrogant reading, makes me, at least, very uncomfortable. In fact, it goes beyond uncomfortable. I just flat out do not believe that that could be what this passage means. There are many ways to love God, many ways to worship God, many ways to know that one is God's beloved. Well, if that's the case, then what do we do with these slightly tricky sentences? Now, I I could preach until tomorrow. I I could even preach till next week sharing all of the different things that biblical scholars have had to say about these two sentences. That's all it is, two sentences. But for today, I'll stick with just a couple of ideas. The first is this. As we must do whenever we read the Bible, we need to consider the history The context, what was happening in the religious and social landscape at the time. The writer of John's gospel was writing to a very specific community. A community of people who had decided that they were going to follow Jesus. And they were struggling. They were having all kinds of conflicts with people of the Jewish tradition at the time. A tradition that they had once been a part of. And they were struggling for their very survival. Their survival both as a faith community and as individuals. People who were daring to choose to follow Jesus. So this passage was not meant to be some bold statement on all of the world's religions. It was simply meant to celebrate and to lift up this faith community to give them something to grasp onto in their identity as a new community of faith. Retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong says that we might consider the community saying this, we know of no other way that we can come to the God of our fathers and mothers except through this Jesus Spong then continues, that was a testimony to their experience. It was not a prescription claiming that they possessed the only doorway to the only God. It was an attempt on a part of the early disciples of Jesus to validate their experience, journeying through Jesus into the mystery of the God they had known in Israel. Spong then concludes, it's amazing to me that this would someday be used to judge all other religious traditions as unworthy, wrong, or even evil. Now, this passage is particular, but it's not exclusive. It is simply lifting up the very distinctive beliefs of a very distinctive community. Now, when we look at it that way, it makes me wonder, you know, what are we? as Christians doing today to celebrate the distinctiveness of our Christian community. You know, there's a reason, I think, why you all are choosing to worship here today at Westminster Presbyterian Church. You know, we're not at Kol Shafar, the Jewish synagogue up the road. You know, we're not out at Green Gulch, the Zen Buddhist center out in Muir Beach. We're not over at the Islamic center of Mill Valley. Now, I have... A profound respect for all of those religious traditions. I know that there is much I can learn about God and about myself from any of those traditions. In fact, I have visited all three places and I have grown deeply in my spiritual journey because of what I have learned there. But still, I am a Christian. We are a Christian community. And it is important for us, like that early community in John's gospel, to lift up and celebrate our distinctive Christian faith. Now, one of the ways we do that is when we come to the Lord's table, when we remember together the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when we remember the promises that he made to his disciples that last night of his life, when we remember how amazingly inclusive that final meal was. Jesus sharing that meal even with the person he knew was going to betray him. And we also remember here at the Lord's table, Jesus' final commandment to his disciples, to love one another. You know, the passage where he gives that commandment to them immediately precedes the passage that we heard today. They have shared this meal together, and then Jesus tells his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the tradition that we celebrate when we come here to this table and that also brings me to the second point I wanted to make about those two pesky little sentences. It's actually printed on the cover of your bulletin as well. When we think about Jesus being the way and the truth and the life, what is his way? It's love. What is his truth? Love. What did his life embody? Love. So yes, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life because love is, is the way, and the truth, and the life, and people come to God through love. Now, one of the names that we have for that love as Christians is Jesus. But there are many, many different names for that love. Pastor and author Roger Woolsey says it this way. He says, all who follow the way of unconditional love of radical hospitality, of loving kindness, of compassion, of mercy, of prophetic speaking truth to power, all who follow the way of forgiveness, of reconciliation, the pursuit of restorative justice, by whatever name they follow, and even if they've never even heard of Jesus, they are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and his way. this one makes me wonder, are we living like that? You know, if we are declaring that we are Christians and we are boldly following the way of Jesus, are we? You know, before we start to worry about people of other faiths or even people of no faith finding their way to God, how are we doing at living the way of Jesus and his love? You know, if you didn't get too bogged down in those pesky sentences early in the scripture passage, Jesus actually has some more things to say later on. He says this, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these. Now, be careful not to get caught up in the mindset that you've got to work your way into heaven or work your way into God's love, because that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, he opens the passage by promising us that he is going before us to prepare the way, that in fact, God's house has many dwelling places and there is room for us all. We are beloved and cherished just as we are, and yet we are also called to do the works of Jesus, to do even greater works than Jesus, to follow in his way. He also tells his disciples that whoever knows him knows God. So could it be, could it be that whoever knows us, whoever sees us following in his way, whoever knows our love, and compassion and mercy. Whoever knows our works of justice and righteousness, whoever knows us, might too know God. I want to share a poem with you. It's called The Face of God, and it's by Andrew King. We thought you wore the skin of thunder, Spoken verbs of storm wind, majestic and mighty as lightning upon summits, unreachable as the cold and silent fire of distant stars, hidden behind a curtain in a temple, an untouchable invisibility, approachable by the highest priest only. And then somehow the veil was parted. We gained glimpses of the glory of the nearness of your love as the hurting were healed, the outcast befriended, the lost restored, and everywhere the powers of death had their dominion challenged by the son of a Jewish carpenter from Galilee. If you have seen me, said Jesus, you have seen the Father, and we do see you there in the Gospels, (laughs) healing in synagogues and in houses, feeding the hungry on hillsides, embracing the lepers and the sinners, turning over tables in the temple, nailed to a cross of injustice, but risen. Greeting women at the graveside, sharing bread with your friends, the dominion of death overturned, approachable, reachable, the accessible God visible in the skin of Jesus but you are not done. Not content to wear such skin only in the pages of the Gospels, the many-colored, multi-shaped body of Christ, the church wide as the nations of the world, bears your image where it acts in your love. Still feeding, still healing, still teaching you mercy, making you visible not in great structures nor in high saints alone, but in the ordinary persons in the pews, as here on a day like any other, a woman making dinner and packing it, knocking on the door of a neighbor newly home from surgery, the face of the one receiving it lit with thankfulness, the face of the one freely giving like the face of, of God. Amen.